Hi, welcome to my podcast, where today I'll talk about whether God forgives non-Christians. My name is Tim Harner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. For this podcast, please reflect on the questions, what is the meaning of the term force majeure? Did God forgive Abraham, Moses, David, and other people in the Old Testament, even though they weren't Christians? Why? How? Does God forgive children who were too young to decide whether to become Christians? Why? How? Does God forgive other people even though they weren't Christians? Why? How? And now, as I talk about force majeure, and whether God forgives non-Christians, let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Today's thoughts are based on Appendix A to the chapter Jesus Blesses Peter in my book, Hoping in the Lord. Force Majeure Does God Forgive Non-Christians? In the text of Jesus Blesses Peter, I state that having the faith to follow Jesus Christ is the only way to cross the ocean of sin that separates us from God, the only way to heal the promised land. I intentionally said having the faith to follow Jesus Christ instead of following Christianity to suggest the answer to a number of perplexing questions. For example, Christians wonder how people such as Abraham, who lived before Christ's death on the cross, were forgiven for their sins so that they could enter heaven even though they never accepted Jesus Christ by faith as their personal Lord and Savior. Related debates surround the salvation of children. The salvation of people today who have never heard that Jesus died for their sins. And the salvation of people who never heard clearly that Jesus died for their sins because of the culture or religion in which they lived, just as communism, paganism, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, or Buddhism. To help answer these perplexing questions, I believe that it is useful to use the legal concept of force majeure, which is the Latin term for a force that is outside a person's control. In contracts, it is standard to include a force majeure clause that excuses non-performance of the contract's requirements if the non-performance is due to a reason that is outside the control of the non-performing person. For example, force majeure clauses excuse non-performance that is due to reasons such as a hurricane, a blizzard, a strike, war, or terrorism. Despite such excuses for non-performance, however, a party is still required to make good-faith efforts to perform to the extent feasible. 
To explain how Abraham got into heaven without accepting Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, I believe that it is appropriate to use the concept of force majeure. Although Christians disagree about the answers to this question, I believe that the best answer is that, just like a judge in a contract law case, God does not penalize people who fail to perform properly due to reasons outside their control. Therefore, God did not penalize Abraham for his failure to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, Abraham's failure to perform his side of the applicable contract covenant dispensation, because Abraham's failure to perform was outside his control. Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross for Abraham's sins. Furthermore, as required by contract law, Abraham made good faith efforts to perform to the extent feasible. In other words, Abraham was a repentant sinner who sincerely sought God in good faith to the best of his abilities and opportunities. Therefore, God, who loves to forgive repentant sinners, treated Abraham as if Abraham had the faith to follow Jesus Christ. In summary, force majeure excuses Abraham because he lived at the wrong time to follow Jesus. Force majeure excuses a young child because he or she died too young to follow Jesus. Force majeure excuses a repentant sinner from another culture or religion who never heard of Jesus because, like Abraham, they can't be expected to follow someone who they never heard of. And although this seems less certain to me, it appears logical that force majeure excuses someone from another culture or religion if, and only if, God, who sees the hearts and motives of people perfectly, determines that the repentant sinner never heard the message about Jesus clearly enough to understand it. Force majeure enables such repentant sinners who sincerely seek God in good faith to the best of their abilities and opportunities to reach the promised land, because God, who is perfectly just and perfectly merciful, excuses their failure to say Jesus is Lord for the same reason that a human judge excuses a failure to perform a contract, because the failure is caused by a reason that is outside the control of the breaching party. Therefore, God, who is perfectly just and perfectly merciful, treats such repentant sinners who sincerely sought God in good faith to the best of their abilities and opportunities as if they had the faith to follow Jesus Christ, as if they had the faith to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, so that they can cross the ocean of sin and reach the promised land. Let's illustrate this by an example from what happens to employee who does not come to work. The general rule is that an employee who does not come to work is fired. But now let's consider what happens if there is a blizzard, an event of force majeure. If the blizzard is so bad that the government closes the roads so that it is illegal to drive to work, no fair-minded employer is going to fire their employee for not coming to work. This illustrates the situation of repentant sinners such as Abraham, a baby, and someone who never heard about Jesus. Although they sincerely wanted to come to work, to say that Jesus is Lord, 
It was absolutely impossible to do so for reasons outside their control, and therefore God does not fire them, condemn them to an eternity of punishment. A fair-minded employer's reaction is harder to predict, however, if the blizzard is not bad enough to make the government close the roads. Depending on all the facts and circumstances, for example, how deep the snow is, how low the visibility is, how well the road is plowed, how far the employee had to come, and how hard the employee tried to overcome these obstacles, the employer may or may not decide to fire the employee. This is the situation of children who are old enough to begin understanding about Jesus, and of people who hear some things about Jesus, but are from a different culture and or religion, and therefore either do not hear very much about Jesus, or what they hear is not heard clearly. Depending on all the facts and circumstances, God may excuse the failure of these people to say Jesus is Lord. Or God may say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Unfortunately, when considering these crucial issues of eternal blessing or punishment, many people make the mistake that I made on the first draft of my third-year paper at Harvard Law School. My faculty advisor, Professor Richard Baxter, was the United States representative on the World Court at The Hague. He noted that I committed the mistake of almost all people when first tackling international legal issues. I started my analysis at the difficult-to-understand gray areas of international law and ended up with a pile of mush. Instead, he told me that in international law, as in any difficult issue to analyze, I should start from what is definitely known, set those propositions up as firm starting points, and then reason as best I could to the gray, uncertain areas. By reasoning this way, we give people meaningful guidance rather than a pile of mush. When Dr. Gary Walsh was the senior pastor at Pierce Memorial Church, he made a similar observation regarding the development of our positions on abortion. He told us to start with the clear cases in which abortion is morally wrong. For example, people get an abortion because it's inconvenient to have a baby at that time or because they don't want their sin to be discovered. Rather than starting with the morally difficult cases in which abortion is considered because of rape, incest, or the threat to the mother's life. In the case of whether people receive eternal blessings or eternal punishment, what are these clear doctrines taught in the Bible from which our reasoning must start? First, there are both eternal blessings and eternal punishment. Second, everyone, even those who follow Jesus, would receive eternal punishment except that Jesus died to be the sacrifice for our sins. And third, to be saved from eternal punishment, we must believe in the Lord Jesus. The only wiggle room in these three essential truths is whether God excuses a repentant sinner's failure to believe in the Lord Jesus explicitly due to reasons beyond their control, force majeure, because God realizes, 
that the repentant sinner believes in the Lord Jesus implicitly. The sacrifices for sin in ancient Israel are consistent with my hypothesis that God waives the usual requirement for the forgiveness of sins if the failure to satisfy the requirement, in this case the requirement to follow Jesus Christ by having the faith to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, is due to force majeure, a reason outside the control of a repentant sinner who sincerely sought God in good faith to the best of their abilities and opportunities. The general rule in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In the New Testament, the shed blood is the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the shed blood was the blood of sacrificial animals, which Christians now realize was a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, therefore, the usual sacrifice for sin was the blood from an expensive animal such as a lamb. Nevertheless, there was an exception for people who were too poor to buy an expensive animal for a sacrifice. For those repentant sinners who were unable to obtain the required sacrifice due to a reason outside their control, in this case their poverty, a different sacrifice, two birds, could be substituted for the lamb. Furthermore, in the case of a very poor person, the repentant sinner could sacrifice two quarts of fine flour even though this different kind of sacrifice did not shed any blood. It seems reasonable to me, therefore, that in the New Testament God is willing to forgive a repentant sinner if, due to reasons outside their control, force majeure, they were unable to acknowledge the proper sacrifice for their sins, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, even though they sincerely sought God in faith, to the best of their abilities and opportunities. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis made this point, that God looks at the substance of our faith instead of at the form of our faith, by having Aslan forgive and welcome into heaven a worshiper of the false god Taslan, because this repentant sinner had, in effect, been worshiping Aslan under the wrong name. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as on my website, timharner.com. My book, Hoping in the Lord, contains citations to sources, including the scriptures. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.